Welcome to the Accountants Exposed podcast, where we create light bulb moments for our listeners by exposing the journeys, secrets, and insights of some of the top players in accounting. This podcast is brought to you by Michael Edelstein, Director and Founder of Recruitment Expert, a specialist accounting recruitment agency working across Australia, New Zealand, and Asia Pacific. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to introduce Michael Carter on our show, affectionately known as MC. Now, MC is considered by many a marketing pro, an innovator, and a problem solver who has been consulting to the accounting profession for over two decades, teaching the marketing psychologist skills and systems required to grow their practice. But more importantly, his focus is on helping accounting firms work more closely and meaningfully with their existing clients. MC had so many insights to share, both personal and business-related, on how practice can achieve optimal growth through strategically thinking about their marketing, that we've split the podcast over two episodes, where we set up the groundwork in part one and follow up with specific strategies, tools, and tactics in part two. Please enjoy. Hi, MC. Thank you for making the time to join us today on the podcast. Hi, Michael. I've heard your name and practice paradox come up quite a lot over the many years that I've been in recruitment um, in the accounting industry. So I think I've even been to one of your talks in Sydney. That's what we realized today. Right. Let's start with your business name. It's a very unique name. What's behind the paradox and practice paradox? Yeah, we get asked that a lot, understandably, because to a lot of people, they think, isn't a paradox a problem or unsolvable riddle? And a paradox essentially means something that seems self-contradictory on the surface, but the longer you think about it, the truer it becomes. So to put that even more succinctly, it's a hidden truth or hidden wisdom. And to me, in my experience, having been around the block a few times at my age now, many of life's wisdoms do lie behind paradoxes. So the answers are often simple, but are not always obvious. Okay. What are some of your favorite paradoxes in life? Wow, there there are so many. Um, you know, in relationships, you know, the old thing about uh, if you love something, let it go. If it comes back, it's yours. So uh, that's to do with the Zen concept of attachment. Often if people are too attached to an outcome, they actually lose their ability to achieve that outcome. Uh, other ones are things like the, the happiness and the productivity paradox, where most unhappy people in the world chase happiness. Happiness is a side effect. It happens when you're doing something worthwhile and meaningful. It's a bit like um, Buckminster Fuller, who's a wonderful author and, and thinker in the early 20th century, would talk about processionary effects, so side effects. And, you know, for example, the whole concept of pollination, the, the, whole, the health of the, the flower's own um, propagation isn't the bee going for the pollen, the bee is going for the nectar and the system is such that the pollen gets spread from one flower to the next as a side effect of what the bee is doing. So, you know, there's plenty of paradoxes in life uh, and all of them fascinate me, which is why I named our business Practice Paradox. Do you know my association with paradox is always like when I when I see your name or I hear the word, it's indelibly printed in my head. Many years ago, I think in two thousand and seven, 
I went to a gift shop. You know, there's like, and it got all the spiritual kind of writings, especially by Dalai Lama. And one of them was The Paradox of Our Age. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. come across it probably as well. Okay. Um, and you can usually see it in scrolls and shops and stuff like that. And, and do you know the one I'm talking about by Dalai Lama? Well, it's normally I, attributed I, to him anyway. Okay. No, I don't. Uh, it, it goes uh, something along the lines of like, we have bigger houses, but smaller families, more conveniences, mm-hmm. but less time. Mm-hmm. We have more degrees, but, but less sense, more knowledge, but less judgment. And it goes on and on and on. Um, and that's kind of, and it's called the paradox of our age. And that's kind of my association with that word now. Right. Okay. Yeah. You know, I have had people say to me, oh, look, you shouldn't call yourself paradox because it's a negative. It, to me, it's absolutely not. It's where the breakthroughs no. come is by mm-hmm. realizing the paradoxes, you know, and the productivity paradox within businesses is, ah, oh, um, if I do things to make my staff happy, they'll be productive. Where many, many studies have found that it's the productive workers who end up being happy with what they're doing. So you need to be aware of... Drive of, them harder? Not drive <laughs> them harder, just give them good good work and a scoreboard that they can control. Um, you know, Lencioni's um, book, um, Three, was it the Three Rules of a Miserable Job? You know, you've got to give people a scoreboard and measurability of things that they can affect, not measure them mm. on things that are subjective whims of management. People love being measured and love a scoreboard when it's a, a player's scoreboard. To borrow a phrase from another book that I love called The Four Disciplines of Execution. Um, but we go off on a tangent there. In terms of accounting firms, why I thought when starting practice paradox which does digital marketing specifically for accounting firms there's a, a number of paradoxes that are limiting the potential that the accounting profession has a, as a whole to deliver value to the world to society and in particular to the small business community and you know one of the paradoxes is that it's not the best calculators that win it's the best communicators that win meaning there's an overemphasis on technical skills and a massive underemphasis on so-called soft skills. And if ever there was a, a poor phrase invented, it's that one, soft skills. Because often they're the most difficult, the hardest skills to develop. So that paradox is that as an advisory profession, the accounting profession really revolves more around people than it does around numbers. And, you know, that's what people would think, what are you talking about? Clearly, accounting is about numbers. And of course, accounting (laughs) revolves around numbers as a core competence, but it's certainly not a differentiator. The Mm. clients, the potential clients of an accounting firm can't judge how technically proficient their accountant is, but they can certainly judge the experience they receive when they talk to their accountant or any of their team members over the phone or in meetings. Uh, So at the end of the day, communication actually trumps calculation in the accounting profession, but it's only the progressive 5% or so that really are quick to embrace that. How do you find the ones that have embraced it? What are the the quick differentiators when you walk as as a client? What would you experience as a differentiator? between those 5% and the, and the remaining 95 <laughs> Well, I've, um, I've been a director in accounting firms. I've founded software businesses such as Business Fitness. I was a co-founder there. They're the providers of the How Now software and the Good, Bad, Ugly benchmarking report for accounting firms. And I've spent a lot of time in accounting firms. And here's a classic sign of in an accounting firm. Let's say a client drops in to an accounting firm. There's no appointment. They've dropped in. To a typical accountant, that's an interruption. 
mm. to an accountant who's a great communicator, who loves dealing with people, that's a wonderful opportunity. And I've heard it, <laughs> I can still recall the conversation between two fairly senior accountants in quite a progressive firm. It was a you know, cubicle nation. It was this open plan office there and they're standing having a chat. And one of them said to the other, how's your day shaping up? The other one goes, oh, yeah, it's okay. I lost a lot of time yesterday. Oh, what happened? Oh, a couple of client drop-ins. And the other one goes, oh, yeah, don't you hate it? They're the worst. And they were laughing. Um, and, you know, that's it, right? They're, those sorts of people shouldn't even be given the opportunity to have client meetings if they view people as interruptions. You know, they're, they, those people prefer to look at a spreadsheet or a list of tasks in a workflow app than a human sitting across from them in a meeting. Hmm. I remember, um, well, it hasn't come out yet, but one of the podcasts I did most recently was, um, do you know Nick Sinclair from TOA? Yeah. He mentioned that as one of the things in our conversation before the podcast, uh, you know, when he walks into a really good accounting firm that understands customers, service mm-hmm. and client-centric mm-hmm. kind of experience, you walk in, the receptionist is smiling, she knows your name, you know, you get a coffee, um, you know, it's a very different kind of experience to walking into a regular one where there might not be anyone there that I remember your name. Um, they don't really, they just put you in a room and you just wait there. There's no interaction, mm-hmm. there's no engagement. Um, and that kind of reminded me of like, you know, client, firms that like seeing clients and firms mm-hmm. that look at it as more of an interruption. So yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, Are there any know, other telltale signs? Um, well, they're grinder heavy. In terms of the model that most people are familiar with if they've been in the accounting profession, David Meister, who uh, most people will know, popularized that term and is the author of, uh, you know, the, the trusted professional and managing the professional services firm, etc. over the years. Um, grinders, minders and finders, where the grinders are good at churning out the work and the minders are good at looking after the clients and the finders are happy to get out of the building and actually go and find clients. But... Accounting profession, and most firms tend to lean towards grinders, processes, mm. when they're recruiting. And you, you could imagine a scenario in a high school, let's say, where someone is meeting with a career guidance counsellor. And imagine the conversation going along these lines. Okay, you know, you're, you're very good uh, with logic and order and attention detail and numbers. Uh, oh, gee, I know what you should be. I, rather than you know what, when I'm with you, I really feel like you're present. You're always interested in me. You're asking questions about me. And I always leave the conversation feeling energized and that you actually took an interest in me. You know what? The perfect career for you would be accountant, right? It doesn't happen. So it would never happen. <laughs> the whole system currently, and this is endemic, and it really is a systemic issue in the accounting profession, is that the accounting profession's ability to communicate value is the biggest skill gap in the profession. Yet, they continue to hire people who see humans as interruptions rather than as connections. So you're never going to succeed. I don't care what conferences you send your staff to, what software you subscribe to that can do dashboards and reports. If your firm is full of grinders, you are not going to deliver a good client experience. Now, if you're listening to this right now and thinking, yeah, but I deliver a great client experience, perhaps as a principal or a partner in the firm, well, that's fantastic. How are you going to actually replicate that and have a modular system of teams where each team does give a good client experience? 
because of what I do, Michael, often people share their experiences with me of their accountants or even prospective accountants that they've met with. And certain things stick in my mind. I remember one guy said to me, when I sit across from my accountant, I just know he doesn't give a shit about me as a person. <laughs> right? Now that sounds extreme. But what was happening is that accountant was meeting with this uh, client um, for a year-end sort of process, and they had their checklist. And they're going through and asking all these questions, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, to work out all the different deductions. And, you know, it felt like they were on an assembly line and a production rather than, okay, so let's talk about where you're headed, how's this year panned out, uh, What? let's look at some things you can do differently to have a better result. Um, so the the... I'm fascinated and passionate about, I hate the word passionate, but I really love the accounting profession because there is so much opportunity right there, right in front of every accountant, every time they talk to a client, email a client, um, where there's opportunities to help them if they know how. But to come back to the paradox idea, right? If the ability to communicate value is the number one thing holding back most accounting firms, and I'll I'm happy to circle back to why that is. The ability to communicate value one to many is, and I'm sorry, um, language warning for everyone. I'm about to use some words that accountants hate to hear that they find quite offensive. The ability to communicate value one to many is marketing. Marketing mm. is the communication of value. In its essence, it's education. That's what I teach our clients, that it's about educating your clients. And the ability to communicate value one to one or one to maybe two or three people, is selling. And accountants run a mile from marketing and sales. They have very negative attitudes towards even learning anything about marketing and selling. And that's a paradox. <laughs> They're running away from the antidote to their ills. And if you look at the studies, like, and I mentioned it briefly, the full name of it is the good, the bad, and the ugly of the accounting profession of the Australian accounting profession. Each year, Business Fitness surveys around about 300 firms, plus or minus 50 or so. Very in-depth survey, if anyone's listening right now has ever done it. And then they report on the findings. You know, what are the high-performing firms doing? What are the average firms doing, etc.? And that question, I've, I've seen this data in other reports too, by people like Spotlight Reporting, who are a global company, but out of New Zealand, um, good friends of ours. And, you know, nine out of 10 firms surveyed Nine out of 10, when asked the question, would you like to do more? And here comes another term that accounts are probably sick of hearing. But would you like to do more value-add advisory future-focused services? Nine out of 10 say yes. But when you look at the revenue mix, what percentage of revenue is coming from the different areas of the business? When I first looked at this, it was about one in 10 firms were actually achieving a significant portion of their revenue being greater than 20% through non-compliance areas. Now, very quick, before Paul Meisner calls up, and uh, <laughs> I love Paul. Um, Paul Meisner, who uh, used to run the great podcast um, with David Boyar called uh, From the Trenches. Um, yep. He's of a very strong view that there is a great business to be had for an accounting firm just doing compliance, and there is. So compli compliance is wonderful. It's a beautiful business in and of itself. But for those who want to actually help clients more and steer them in their life and uh, towards something that's important for them in their life, the advisory needs to be marketed and needs to be sold because by its very definition, it's non-compliance, right? So the government of the world 
is not the governments of the world, they're not making small businesses, have to plan. You know, I would love it in any country, but let's talk about Australia. We deal with clients in about eight different countries. But if there was a, a budget handed down where there was a tax incentive or inversely, a penalty for not doing this, where rather than just report on the last 90 days with the business activity statements, they had to do a projected cash flow forecast prepared by a professional based on historical patterns. The technology is all here for that. Uh, all in place to do that very efficiently these days, of course. But, you know, to be lodging projections and plans, you know, working capital and cash flow projections. But at the moment, because small businesses don't have to do that, they're not penalised for not doing it, they don't do mm. it unless they're with um, uh, an accounting firm, a business advisory firm who really, I'm going to swear again, you can beep me out later, but who really gives a shit about helping their small for as business. as much as you want. <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, they really, really care about helping their small business clients have a better life. And another story just popped in my head. In my business fitness days, being one of the uh, four co-founders there, part of what we would do would be conferences around Australia, not just in capital cities, but, you know, around the coastline of Australia in particular. And I remember, I think I was in Rockhampton at one of these business fitness classes that we were running. And I was sitting next to a gentleman who would have easily been in his mid-60s, maybe a little bit older. And... When I was at these events, I would just love asking questions and listening to the stories. And I said to him, what's been the most rewarding thing for you in your career, um, you know, over the last 40 plus years as an accountant? And to me, this really summed up the difference that a future-focused accountant can make. And he said, you know what? Just last weekend, I was uh, invited to attend the wedding of a client's daughter. And you might think, Oh, what's the big deal about that? He said, well, my wife and I were invited. We went along and we looked at this, the seating arrangement and we were seated at the parents' table. It was a big wedding and we were at the parents' table, so in the inner circle of people in their life. And we were really chuffed about that. And when I thought about it, we've taken this family from when they were young, when they went into business for themselves, saw them through the period where they had kids, growing kids, and then everything that comes with that, having to educate them, care for them, house them, etc. And, you know, we really have been an integral part of them having a really good life. And here's their daughter getting married, and we are at the table with the parents. And you know, to me, that was just a confirmation. This is what the gentleman said, that, you know, what we do really matters. And to me, that's just, mm. that's perfect. That really sums up what a future-focused accountant can do in the lives of their clients. And that's the element of being that trusted advisor, basically. Um, it, it is, yeah. They aim to be, theoretically. And, <laughs> and most claim to be. <laughs> yeah. Circling back, uh, once again, just reminding me of something. Um, one, one of the previous guests in the podcast was John Knight from the Business Depot. Oh, Yes. Don't know if you've come across him. Oh, yeah. Um, I've watched John's journey closely from Business yeah. Depot and prior. Yeah, very switched on operator. Very switched on. But uh, I th I think what made me think of him straight away as you were speaking was your focus on the human and also uh, your discussion about the, the grinders versus the minders, etc. Um, <laughs> when I speak to John, his whole essence is about the human. Like mm -hmm. for him, accounting has always been a tool to help businesses and clients, but he's always his central focus has been the connection with the human, whether it's yeah. a staff or mm -hmm. his focus on his clients. And 
and their journeys and how you can add value to them. And he's a big proponent of marketing that would allow him to spread that connection from one to many, as you said before. And, and that's probably why his firm has grown so quickly and so much. Um, yeah, he's done a lot of things really well. Yeah. Have you actually had much to do with him? No, I haven't. No. But when, when I was watching Business Depot launch and evolve, everything they were doing was just 100% aligned in terms of their attention to, you know, he's a, a kind of a minor point, but it's not a minor point, is the fact that he cares about design. If you look at all of their branding and their website, everything was always on brand. Even the, you know, the photography of the team members in there always had a particular filter and you know, look and feel. So you could tell that the founder of that business really cared about design. And uh, I won't go on about design, but it is a very common trait in the superstar clients that we've had over our 12 years. They have all cared about design. Um, years ago... So I'm showing my age now. Um, in the early 1990s, I was running a consulting division for a company called uh, the Results Corporation. So the Results Corporation, for those listening, predated Results Accountant Systems, which predated uh, Results Accountants Network. But there's like a family tree you could draw out of related yeah. businesses. But one of my clients was um, a retailer in the financial precinct in, Bris in Brisbane. Uh, his name was George, and he had a, a big poster up on the wall. So he's selling nice suits, right? Suits, ties, shoes, all that sort of stuff. And it's a saying that I saw many times later after, but the first time I saw it, this poster on the wall, and it said, you know, good grooming never got a person into the boardroom, but bad grooming kept plenty out. Now, that's coming from a retailer wanting to sell you a nice suit, right? But yeah. from a design perspective, the average accountant's brand looks like a cheap, crumpled suit. The average website, their branding looks like, you know, their high school son or daughter or the work experience kid or the intern or someone did it. Just horrific. A true story on that. Like people think I'm joking when I, I give examples like that. So firm recently, we take a very structured approach when we work with firms. Like if someone came to us and said, oh, we want help with blogging. Can you do that? Um, we wouldn't just start with that because that's a waste of time to start there. If, for example, the website isn't going to effectively keep people there when they go there. And anyway, this site had a horrific, this firm had a horrific logo, terrible colours. It looked like a piece of clip art. And I said to this gentleman, his name was Michael. Uh, so, Michael, can I ask? So this is before he's a client. Who designed your logo? And I should have been doing air quotes as I said the word designed. And he went, oh, our, our design lady did it. His word's not mine. And I said, okay. And then he moved on to something else. And I circled back again. I said, so who was it that did your logo? Our design lady. I said, so does she do this for a living? <laughs> and he said, well, yeah, she does our design stuff. I said, so she has a business designing logos. Well, kind of was his response. I said, well, what does kind of mean? Well, she's the wife of our IT guy. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> we kept going. I said, look. Really, and I use the example, you currently look like a cheap crumpled suit and that is the seed. Your colors, your logo, is that's the seed of your visual branding. We can't make your website and blog posts and email newsletters and social posts look good if the seed in the corner looks amateur and rubbish and that's going to have to change. And he didn't like hearing that. But um, part of what we do is to dish out tough love, just like good parents. You know, you don't tell your kids what they want to hear. You tell them what they need to hear. And sometimes it's tough love. 
So the, the takeaway from that is you can't just launch into marketing and start doing content without the right foundation, such as, you know, the right image, the right message, um, the right logo, etc. Correct. But even upstream from that uh, is strategy. One of the models that we use, Michael, mm -hmm. when we explain marketing, because marketing can seem like a black box of mystery to many. Uh, and there's a lot of operators in marketing that may have done a weekend course in something and all of a sudden there's some expert in LinkedIn or social media or something like that. There's plenty of those at the moment. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of not so good operators in the space. So, you know, it does pay to be, to be cautious. So we explain with marketing, we use the analogy of a marketing machine that has gears, first, second, third gear, etc. And first gear where, you know, when you're learning to drive, I don't know if you can recall learning to drive a manual car, but when you're at an intersection or something and you go to start and you're accidentally in third gear, it doesn't go so well. Same with third gear in marketing is, is publishing content. If you start there, it won't go so well. So first gear is strategy. And even quite sophisticated firms, when they come to us, often are missing one or two pieces of their strategy, even though they may have been active with blog posts and videos and webinars. And when they get those pieces in place in their strategy, then everything changes for them in terms of the effectiveness of that marketing content. Then after strategy, the second gear is your presence. So the presence is the first impressions that your business makes when someone first discovers it online. So that includes what the website looks like, the initial wording that people read. Um, it's called the value proposition on the homepage. Even people's social media accounts, whether they're branded consistently and professionally as their website. Then the third gear is, is content because then your website is actually worthy and ready of more traffic or, or visitors. A uh, quick analogy on that one is your website's like a bucket and the people visiting your website is like um, water going into the bucket and most people are pouring water into leaky buckets, which is a website that doesn't actually have people stay and read and click and download and end up on the email mm. newsletters, newsletter list, etc. So, yeah, it, it, you can tell when people are a bit disappointed uh, initially when they say, yeah, we want to get into social media and we want to get into blogging. We go, yeah, great. Let's look at the process to get you there because they're champing at the bit to you know, get into content publishing, but we save them from themselves. Okay. Circling back a little bit, um, the different type of people at accounting firms, high end, it comes back to what you call the value at chasm that your firm also helps to bridge. Mm. The type of people that they do need to hire, how how would they go about attracting them? What what exactly are the type those types of people that can help them bridge that chasm as well? That's that is a great question, Michael. In terms of attracting the people, people uh, into the profession. And there are a few different ways that I'm seeing progressive firms do this. And there's no right or wrong or exclusive way of doing this. But one way is to acknowledge that the system at the moment of people going from school into an accounting degree and then coming out is generally producing grinders. Whereas what we're seeing a lot of progressive firms is get get them before the system gets to them and basically um, place kids uh, straight out of high school into, you know, traineeships. Cadetships and stuff. Cadetships, yeah. yeah. Um, one of our clients in Brisbane... And a, lot, and a lot of partners were made that way. Like if, you, if I look at most young partners that made it to the top very quickly, they started as cadets. Yeah, absolutely, because they get on the ground very quickly and 
in my experience, in most degrees, I've got a few degrees. I've actually got an industrial design background, an innovation technology background as well. Part-time students tend to produce the best graduates because they're in the real world while they're learning the theory, mm. not getting three or four or five years of theory and then being put out in the, in the real world. So, um, you know, cadetships, internships is a very, very good way of going about it. Uh, one of our first clients is a business called Growthwise. I don't know if you know Steph Hines. In um, Newcastle, right? In Newcastle, yeah. She was our first client to go through our what was then called our Modern Marketing Academy program. And, um, yeah, got a few stories about Steph. She's quite quite a character. But I remember her sharing at one of our masterclasses how, if I recall correctly, this team member's name is Daniel, and he started out of high school and then went into accounting, studied accounting, kept working in the firm. And in his late teens, before it even hit 20, he already had a number of years experience under his belt working in the firm and was an important cog in their business advisory um, service in terms of delivering it. They were at the time, and they probably still are using uh, spotlight reporting. And the thing is with reports and dashboards, they need interpretation. You can't just put a dashboard or, or a report, no matter how colorful mm. and pretty it is in front of a client. The clients, they're busy. They're, they're, you know, they're struggling in the operational whirlwind, as they call it, in the four disciplines of execution. So they need someone to say, here's what this means and here's what you've got to do. And Daniel, as a, I think at the time a 19-year-old, was involved in that interpretation and commentary on the monthly reports going out to their clients. So that's amazing, right? Most 19-year-olds would not be involved in such an important um, delivery piece. There was a QA. No, they'd be doing... To be doing back office, bazers and trial balances. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, get get the kids in young, right? And teach them okay. teach them your culture. The other thing is, and I'm going to be brutally honest here, uh, the best talent isn't necessarily sitting out there going, What I really want to do is go work for a small accounting firm. They're not. They're not sitting around um, most of them until they come across something that really ignites them they see something they think that is cool or sick or dope or whatever words the kids use these days i've got a couple of teenagers it's hard to keep up with the latest adjectives um, but they see something that they really really like and they think wow that is really freaking cool and you're not going to get that if your digital presence is a crumpled boring navy pinstripe suit but you're going to get it i think um last time i looked at Growthwise's website their headline at the top of the homepage was think learn grow and kick ass so it's a bit mm. different it's a bit out there but someone who's uh that relates to they're going to think here's something different here's something different so it really does help to have very strong digital presence that is a bit cut through not just doing the usual like most content that accounting firms do i don't know why they even bother and most providers of content to accounting firms i don't know why they bother I kind of like them out there because they provide good contrast. But just for us, but, you know, just telling people when the next deadlines are and um, for lodgements and payments, sure, sure, that stuff's important, but it's not life-changing. Um, it's not exciting to them. They figure you're going to tell them anyway and make sure uh, that they stay compliant. But uh, Steph shared in one of our member webinars once how she picked up a brand new client and this story illustrates the power of a marketing approach that is educational in nature rather than promotional. 
And she just picked up this new client. It was the end of the initial engagement meeting where they'd signed on the bottom line. The client had signed up to the full suite of services. So yes, the compliance piece, but the monthly reporting and uh, you know the coaching and the technology support, et cetera. And Steph then realized she'd forgotten to ask this new client where they first discovered GrowthWise. And the client's answer was, well, I've been following you for a while now because I read an article of yours that was about the, why the number one asset for a small business is data. And that jumped out at me because I thought, what's an accountant talking about data for and assets? That seemed a bit weird, but I read it and you opened my eyes to the power of you know, cloud computing, cloud accounting, and this whole idea of, of joining apps together into a tech stack. And that really shifted my thinking and I've been following you ever since. And Steph went, oh, that's an old article. When did you read that? And the client had to think back and went, I think it was about nine months ago, right? So mm. that's the power of great content is you are shifting people's thinkings, you're shifting their belief, and they will be drawn towards your leadership when you're showing them a better way. Because 99% of accounting firms out there are just telling everyone about the next payment and lodgement deadlines or an interpretation of the last budget. And that stuff is important, but it's not life-changing. The thing of partners will always say is, uh, and you, you've come to a great point. A, um, content is hugely valuable, and, uh, and and John said that. Like I asked him what he finds as the most effective marketing tool. He said content. Um, and then my next question was, well, like everyone's being told to produce content, and everyone is basically <laughs> spamming content these days. Oh, How do you yeah. stand out? Um, and he had an answer for that. But um, how is a small and just for the listeners as well, like most of your clients are one to two partner firms, small, entrepreneurial, kind of nimble. Mm-hmm. Probably, what would you say? What, what's their size in terms of fee and staff size? Uh, in terms of the firms that we typically work with? Yeah. Yeah. As you said, Michael, they're typically one to two partner firms. Though so we've worked with mm-hmm. large firms. We've worked with offices of the big four. We've worked with listed companies as well. Yeah. Um and but you know the typical is one or two partner firms, and they usually have somewhere between you know seven to seven to fifteen staff, mm. or thereabouts. So, and one of the things that we like, focus on is helping them increase their average client fee, like on an annual mm. basis, not just by um, putting their prices up, right, but by actually scoping and selling. Uh, more services on top of that compliance piece. And it's not uncommon for a firm that might say have a current average annual client fee for a small business client of say in Australian dollars, say 4,000 to get that up around 12,000 when you learn wow. how to package in the advisory. So that's about one of the about baking I'm... in advisory is like standard and normal, not some optional cross-sell, upsell. I hate those words. It's not something <laughs> optional, but it's just a core part of the offering. Okay. Well, what I was going to ask you is like a, a typical firm of that size, when the partner is very hands-on, and especially if it's a sole practitioner where everything is on their plate, staff recruitment, management, client retention slash new clients, etc., and and also the execution of the the, the grinding work, um, finding the time to focus on marketing because that's really what I'm getting out of this and what I've gotten out of other conversations. It, it's it's a thing that you can't do ad hocly. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to be a focus. It has to be strategic. How do they find the time to write the articles, have a strategy around? Is that do, do you find most of them just outsource it to someone? Do they sit down and do it themselves? Like, what's mm. the what's the common thing and what's the right approach? 
Wow, there's multiple levels to that. It's a great question. The first thing that you can't do is abdicate. And by abdicate, I mean it's a very different thing to delegate. So abdicate is where you think you can sign a check, so to speak, dust your hands off and say, you handle that. Now, if you do that, you'll get a very ordinary outcome. So what you need to do is to collaborate with someone who helps in your content workflow. So let's use workflow as an example because accounting firms relate to that, right? Yep. And in, in a firm, let's say, you know, a firm might have seven people in it. A job might go through three different people to get it out the door, right? Maybe four. So doing different levels of work. Same with the content. So the key is, if you're not a good writer yourself, and when I say good, that also means quick <laughs> to get to a finished mm. piece. And most people are not those things, right? Um, writing, writing is hard when you do it well. And with digital content, there's also other aspects apart from the article. There's making it rank well in Google, but I'll, I'll park that for a moment. What uh, the thought leaders, well, I hate that term thought leaders, but basically the people with ideas within yep. the business, what they need to do is have the ability to do brain dumps and then hand that off. And a brain dump can be, depending on their own preference, it's a bit like, you know how some people are visual, some people are kinesthetic, some people are auditory. Uh, in our experience, having dealt with many hundreds of firms now around the world over the last 12 years, the most common form that when we're doing blogging for an accounting firm of brain dump is uh, basically through the keyboard, dot points, the rough ideas, bam, words, bam. Mm -hmm. But other brain dumps that people use is sometimes audio because sometimes people might dictate into their smartphone while they're yep. um, you know, walking along, walking the dog or driving the car or whatever. And then we transcribe that and do like a journalistic approach. That's the interview, so to speak. And then mm -hmm. uh, we polish it from there. But upstream from all of this is they need to understand why they're bothering to do the content in the first place. So if you want to avoid pedestrian same, same content that you've only got to log into LinkedIn and have a look at all the very ordinary same, same content out there. They need to have frameworks to understand what is my goal here. And when you're writing a piece of content, before you even think of a topic, let alone start writing, it's who's my target audience. Yeah. And so for an accounting firm, one of the things that we help them work out, Michael, is uh, you know, are we targeting anyone with a checkbook and a heartbeat, as the old joke goes, right? A lot of firms take anyone who walks through the door. Or do we have some specific target markets? So we help firms work out their target buyer personas or, or avatars, which are these imaginary people that are described in depth on 32 different aspects. We help them describe those. And then when you're writing an article, you go, okay, who is this article speaking to? It's not speaking to the general public because that will get ignored. It's not speaking to small businesses in general, because that will get ignored. So it's got to be to a specific target audience. And then what is it about? So part of the target by persona, which essentially is just deeply understanding who you want to connect with, is what are these things that keep them awake at night? You know, their pain points, their aspirations, where are they stuck? Where are the quick wins? And that then gives you the topics to write content about. So at this point, no one's even written a word. This is framework. This is thinking. Okay, so then you're thinking, all right, let's talk about the challenge they have around whatever. Let's say it's managing their cash flow. Then you can uh, work out what are the, the three core principles that if they understood that 
area. So here we're talking about education. So you imagine when you're producing a piece of content that you're teaching, you're teaching a class. What does my target audience need to understand about managing their cash flow, the rights and the wrongs? And the content essentially just um, shifts their thinking. Here's a bit of the psychology about why good blogging works. Um, There's a principle in psychology that uh, many people would have heard of called cognitive dissonance. Now, cognitive dissonance, so crucial. And for those of you listening now who that's uh, a new concept to, it essentially means it's where a person's newfound knowledge, attitudes, and belief are at dissonance or or differ against um, what they were previously um, seeing, understanding, and believing. And a good article or video or any piece of content will shift people's thinking where they go, oh, hang on, that article just talked about three things to not do in managing a business cash flow, and we're doing all three of them. Bam. <laughs> that cognitive dissonance creates a discomfort that they then want to address. And to sell advisory services, you must get your clients feeling that discomfort, that disconnect, are discontent or cognitive dissonance before they'll even want to have a conversation about it. It's a bit like if someone wants to get fit, right? They want to lose weight or improve their body shape or whatever it is. Have the genes that they owned five years ago fit them comfortably. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got to feel that discomfort to care enough to take action. Comfortable people mm-hmm. just stay on the proverbial couch. So you've got yeah. to get people out of their comfort zone. And the best way to do it is educate them in a way where you're giving them some tough love, you're grabbing them by the shoulders, you're shaking them and helping them just really realize the gap between where they are now and where they could be. Because that is really what advisory services is. They're footbridges to basically just bridge those gaps between where they are now in whatever aspect of their life and where you're educating them that they could be if they just followed a particular process. Okay. I like the example you've given of cognitive dissonance and discomfort that, is a bridge towards being able to offer them or for the client to even approach you and talk about because let, let's face it as you said before accountants don't exactly love selling they kind of expect the client to come and approach them before mm-hmm. they offer them a service um so it, it's a good little bridge i would say for sure and, and you know one thing for anyone who's still thinking yeah but i still don't like marketing <laughs> i i <laughs> Totally acknowledge the cynicism because particularly in the business to consumer, the B2C space, we've all had bad experiences with bad salespeople, right? Whether it's Mm. buying a a car or a house or something, right? So people think that it's about being tricked or outwitted or something. But in the business to business space, which is where we operate, it's just basically about being helpful. It's just about helping people go from where they are to where they could be. And to focus on that education, here's the beautiful thing about it. When you do a really great piece of content that is educational, people will thank you for it. They're not going to thank you for an ad or a brochure, but they'll thank you for shifting their thinking because that led to them feeling a discomfort that they then did something about. So this style of marketing will work to attract new clients, but your existing clients will also feel a sense of gratitude on that. Um, And this just popped into my head, as I said it. Client of ours in Brisbane, uh, they worked with us for a couple of years, then they stopped for a while. She had a lot of stuff going on in her personal life, the changes, and she just sort of took a foot off the marketing accelerator, which was fine. We said, hope to see you back again sometime. And she came back and I said to her, Susan, her name is, I said, Susan, what brought you back? She said, my clients. 
they were saying, where are those articles you used to send us? They were really helpful. <laughs> so people aren't going, where are those ads you were running? I miss them. <laughs> so, you know, just be helpful. Okay. Well, look, everyone drums on about the whole, especially I've noticed over the last couple of years, um, everyone drums on about value add and advisory and you should move into that, etc. For obvious reasons. One is the dollar factor. As you said, it increases your average fees from three grand to 12 grand plus. Um, how do you see advisory? Like what, what, because it, it's such a broad term, what mm. is advisory mm. that the you're advocating for that accountants should be providing to their clients? Well, the first thing I would say is there's no one definition of advisory and that each accounting firm can define their own boundaries around what is advisory and what is not advisory in terms of what they want to deliver. So that's the first thing, because as you say, Michael, it's a very, very broad term. A lot of people talk about compliance plus as a term, the level of advisory that's mm. just beyond what they're doing. My favorite sort of sweet spot with advisory is essentially management accounting. So it's the future focused projections mm -hmm. to help the businesses, you know, set targets, work towards those, look at what are the leverage points and KPIs. But if anyone wants to see my full view of advisory and why, frankly, uh, most accounting firms have failed in their desire to deliver more advisory, if they just Google our business name of Practice Paradox and the value pyramid, what we did one day um, on a flip chart in the office, I was just brainstorming with the team, what are the reasons why accounting firms find it hard to deliver advisory? And one of them, one of the reasons is they find it hard to scale beyond the principals or directors being personally involved in delivering those services. And a lot of the advice that different business coaches around the traps that help accounting firms, and you and I know plenty of them, um, they often give advice that to me is not scalable. If you're adding a service to your range of services in the accounting firm, and it's going to have to be delivered by the most senior people in the firm, well, you've got a problem, haven't you? Because there's already a bottleneck in the firm. And when you look at bottles, the bottleneck's usually at the top of the bottle there somewhere. So you want to design advisory that adds value, but can be a workflow team collaboration, if you like, uh, to deliver it. So what we identified were these different layers of value around the different pieces of real-time data at the at the bottom, then compliance, then clarity, then accountability, etc. And the top two levels of strategy and innovation of adding value, and you'll see it in the blog, I think it's a three or four part blog post series that I wrote, is that the highest points of value are actually very, very difficult to deliver um, as a business. It's okay if you're a solo you know, coach or consultant, you can do those things. Mm. But to have a team deliver them, it will take years to get your team members up to speed uh, to where you are. So there is a sweet spot right in the middle of the value pyramid that is around uh, clarity and accountability. People will pay money to be held accountable. Otherwise, there wouldn't be this thing called the personal trainer. Uh, everyone, everyone could set their alarm an hour earlier tomorrow and get out of bed and go to the park. But if they commit and pay money to someone to show up, they're more likely to get results. People are happy to be held accountable. And to me, that is the sweet spot of compliance plus advisory where uh, you can have team members that might have only, say, three plus years experience be very meaningfully, ethically and profitably 
involved in delivering the advisories, but avoid the ones that can only be delivered. We've actually got a, a little calculator. Actually, I'm happy to provide it as a value add if you like. It's an Excel spreadsheet, so that should get everyone's propellers whirring, um, <laughs> where across six different factors for each service that your firm either delivers or is thinking about delivering, on each of these six factors, you rate them from one to 10 in terms of the um, available labor force to deliver that or the um, ability to teach that to someone else or the ability to automate aspects of it. And then it uses conditional formatting uh, in Excel to color code it on a scale through you know red, orange, yellow, green. And you can see what the most scalable services are. And a, mm. a huge mistake that an accounting firm can make is to try to, um, try to do too many advisory services you'll sometimes see websites for accounting firms and you look at their services page and you think, do you really offer all of that stuff? And I know with my experience that probably a lot of what's listed there might be something they do every once in a while, you know, once in a blue moon or maybe through an occasional referral relationship. But, you know, here's a paradox for you. I call it the focus paradox. You succeed by doing less, not more. Mm. Greg McEwen wrote about it in his excellent book called Essentialism. But you succeed by doing less. So it takes discipline for a business to go, yes, I know I could d deliver 36 different services. We're capable of doing it. I learned them at uni. I got distinctions in those subjects. I know how to do these things. But to have the discipline to limit those 36 back to six and really, really nail the marketing, the selling and the delivery of those half a dozen services and do them insanely well and just develop relationships, um, you know, trusted referral relationships outside of those so that you're still looking after your clients when you get those requests outside of that core. But, you know, that scalability piece can't be ignored. It's not the be-all and end-all. There might be very unscalable services that someone might choose to do for strategic reasons because it's their R&D, you know, their research and development playground. Yeah where they learn things and they're pushing boundaries. That's fine if the learnings are then leveraged. Thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like our podcast and share it on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, wherever it is you hang out so more people can benefit from these speakers. Also, please subscribe on our website so you get all of our latest episodes. And if there's anything else I can help you with or you have speakers you'd love to hear from or some feedback about the current episode, please feel free to send an email to michael at recruitmentexpert.com.au. Until then, take care and I look forward to connecting with you in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm honored to introduce Michael Carter on our show, affectionately known as MC. MC is considered by many a marketing pro, an innovator, a problem solver, who has been consulting to the accounting profession for over two decades, teaching them marketing psychology, skills, and systems required to grow their practice. But more importantly, his focus is actually on helping accounting firms work more closely and meaningfully with their existing clients. MC had so many insights to share, both personal and business-related, on how a practice can achieve optimal growth through strategically thinking about their marketing, that we've split the podcast over two episodes. In the first one, we set up the groundwork and we follow that up with part two where we discuss the specific strategies, tools, and tactics that he recommends. Please enjoy.